Hi. You can sit down if you want. <sighs> well, now you're in for the next installment of Job. And it will not be the five-year trek, uh, like the long journey. It seems that I will finish up chapter five today, God willing, and the creek don't rise. So what we're going to do is right away, we, I'd like to go right to the word. So let's, uh, let's do this. Before I read the text, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. This book is, is amazing. You have Eliphaz speaking. He's speaking some words of wisdom, but he's also speaking a lot of things he has no clue about what he's talking about. He does not know the heart of Job. He does not know why this is happening. He's making a lot of assumptions here. And these assumptions are damaging. Okay, It's almost like today, when we think of this prosperity gospel that is being thrown at us left and right, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, you can have what you want as long as you think positively about it. You know, it didn't work for Robin Williams. Uh, don't worry, be happy when he was in that video. It didn't work for him. It doesn't work for anyone. The only thing that we can have is Christ. That's all we got. All I have is Christ. I love that song. And so when you think about this, I want you to think logically here that we have an amazing God in heaven who is truthful and honest. And what you have from Eliphaz is someone who is thinking he is being truthful and honest. And yes, he's throwing out some truths, but he's throwing out truths to the wrong person at the wrong time. Because assuming that Job is in sin is incredibly, I don't know, sinful. Because he does not know. And so I want you guys to think about that. So as we read the word of God, would you mind standing as we read? I should have had you stand before and stay standing, but I forgot. So, so in Job chapter 5, verses uh, 10 through 26, <clears throat> says this. Who gives rain upon the earth and sendeth... Uh, sorry, my mind just went blank. Okay, nine. Uh, which does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Who gives rain upon the earth and sendeth waters upon the fields to set up on high those that be low, that those which mourn shall be exalted to safety. He disappoints uh, the the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He takes the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in night. But he saves the poor from the sword and from, the, uh, from their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and iniquity stops her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects Therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. For he makes sore and binds up, and he woundeth, and his hands make whole. He shall deliver uh, thee up six, in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Neither shalt uh, thou be afraid of destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh, neither shalt uh, thou be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit thy habitation, and shall not sin. And thou shalt know also that, I, uh, that thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. Thou shalt come to thy grave in full age, like a shock of corn comes in a season. Lo, this we have searched, so it is. Hear it, and know thou it for your good. So, Father, we come before you, Lord God, just thankful for your grace, and thankful for your mercy, and thankful for your kindness, and thankful for Job. Thankful for this example, Lord God, of really uh, you carrying him in the midst of this book, even though even Job says some things that are not right, beginning to doubt your goodness. So I ask that you would have your way as we walk through this text and may Christ be exalted, your name be praised, for you do do great things, and so I'm thankful for that. And so I ask that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you can be seated for the final time at this point. Until later. Okay, so 
Job was written to show that the wrong judgment of Eliphaz, but Eliphaz says some right things about God, and then some wrong things about guaranteed blessings. So today you will see that God does do great things, and that we need to be careful when we use general principles as guarantees. Because general principles are not guarantees. So I want you to think that through a little bit. So here's our first truth, and probably the most amazing truth that we should recognize is God does great things. I heard an amen. God does great things. All right. So we pick up in verse 8. I want to just go back one. I want you to listen to what he says to Job. Eliphaz is speaking. And he says, I would seek unto God, and unto God I would commit my cause. We see that Eliphaz has called Job to look to God, to seek God, and that is what Job does, but it is not in this nice package of Christianity. It's not in the, a nice package of Christendom, okay? Job is a little messy. He's hurting. He's broken. He wishes that he, would, he had never been born at all. Yes, wrong thinking, no doubt, but Job was battling in his heart. And Eliphaz is reading into the struggles and attributing them to sin. And when it was not about, even though it's not about punishment, but for the glory of God, Eliphaz is thinking he knows the exact reason that Job is struggling with these things. It's funny. He tells Job to commit his way unto God and to commit his cause into the hands of God who does what is good and right. And he, he gives Job, that's good advice. But this is not about Job being in sin. Okay? He's giving the wrong advice at the wrong time to the wrong guy. Now, yes, Job should seek after God's face. His life is already in the hands of God, and there's a purpose for this struggling. This story is not about Job. This story is about God. This story is not about the glory of Job and the blessings in Job's life. This is about the God of blessings, the God of grace. And the God of mercy. Okay? And this is about God being able to hold the saints even though people are saying that he can't hold them. And so, it's really awesome. So, Eliphaz has been applying some right truths to the wrong man at the wrong time, wrongly judging. And as wrong as Eliphaz has been, Eliphaz says some right things. Look at Job 5.9. Which, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. So God does great things. He does great unsearchable things. Things that cannot be explained away. Things that we may not fully understand this side of heaven. God is awesome and mighty. He does miraculous and he does the mundane. I think we, we, we begin to minimize certain things. Oh, he didn't heal, you know, raise that guy from the dead. But isn't it a miracle that we breathe? Guys, we cannot breathe without God. He gives every breath that we have. So he is involved in the miraculous and the marvelous and in the mundane. And by the way, that mundane thing you should be praising God for. Every breath that you take. When's the last time you took a breath and said, thank you, God, for that breath? We're supposed to do everything for the glory of God, aren't we? When's the last time you took a glass of water and you thank God and praise God for the glass of water that you're drinking? I mean, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Okay. And so God is awesome and mighty. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made it and he, he made the minutest thing in all the world, in all of creation. And some say that Adam was the smallest thing that God had made. But now we have found this something called a quark that has been discovered. And God made that too. Okay, I want you to think about that. In the middle of, of, of the fact that we do not know all the smallest things in all of creation, because we didn't have microscopes, we're finding more and more. But in the end, God is the sovereign God. I love our book we're reading on Sunday nights. By the way, men, big plug, book we're reading on Sunday nights. It is a systematic theology book by James Pettigrew Boyce. And speaking about the providential care of God, here's what he says. His creative care has therefore descended to the, to the things most minute. And thus, the way has been opened to, to the belief that Scripture cannot even tell us how minute 
his providential care, which God is now exercising over all of creation. He is walking every step with us. If God would take his hands off of creation, it would zoom out of control. He is the one that holds all things. And so I always struggle uh, with, with kind of people saying that God is uh, not sovereign over everything. I really do. I struggle with this. See, he's, he's sovereign over the sun, and they will say yes. He's sovereign over the moon, and they will say yes. He's sovereign over the, uh, the stars, and they would say yes. He's sovereign over the waves, and they say yes. Over the seas, and they say yes. Over the birds, the bees, the rocks, the trees, and they say yes. But he's not sovereign over the human heart? No. My God is sovereign over the human heart as well. And this is my point. Okay? The sovereign God is sovereign over everything or he's sovereign over nothing. Amen. And so, that, does that make sense? So I want you to really think about this God that we have. God doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need what we think. I, you know, can you understand the great riches of God? Can you understand everything God does? I, I wanted, I, you know, I, I thought Doug was going to be here for a little bit and I was going to sing for him. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? I'm going to start work, uh, speaking now. Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom? All his wondrous deeds. And it goes, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come let us adore him, right? So I, I started singing again. I told you I wouldn't. Sorry. Okay. So think about that. The God of everything. The God of everything doesn't need your advice. Did you tell him where to put the sun, the moon, and the stars? Because I didn't. In fact, uh, I wish there was a little more cloud cover right here. Because it looks like I'm getting at the sun in about two minutes. So, but I want you to think about that. So you, you have this unfathomable God. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. God holds the secret things and we will never know them here. But the things that are revealed, here we know them. And here we teach them. And here we give them to our children. So the secret things belong to God. And we will never understand things on this side of heaven. But there are things that are given to us to understand because they're revealed so that we could teach them to our children so they could walk out what the word of God says all the time. Romans 11.33 agrees. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of God and who has been his counselor? Again, we haven't counseled him. But he is the unsearchable God. His judgments unsearchable. His ways are so far behind us. I love what Paul Washer says about eternity. He says, we will spend eternity learning new things about God every day, every minute. As he reveals something new, we will praise him, and then we will have be driven to our knees to praise him again for the next new thing we learn. And we will spend eternity learning about the unsearchable God and his unsearchable uh, truths and judgments. And so here's what it says in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Stop thinking you know, and just be faithful to what God has called you to do. I think sometimes we begin to, to muck up the will of God with our own will. Just be faithful to what God has called you to do. So, who knows the mind of God? Well, it seems Eliphaz does, right? Because he seems to go with that, that intention in his heart. 
Listen, Eliphaz believes he knows the purpose of God. He seems to have this inside information about Job's sinfulness before God. He seems to know that Job, what's ailing Job is his own wickedness and foolishness. But again, Job was an upright man. But Eliphaz was not privy to the conversation between God and Satan. Okay? It is God that said he was blameless and upright. And not Job himself. And so, does that make sense? And so, should, should Job cry out to God? Absolutely, let him cry out. By the way, you should each be crying out to God. For yourselves. But not because he is wicked. But because God is good. And he hears the prayers of his saints. The prayers of the righteous availeth what? Much. And so we have to understand. So again, we see Eliphaz now say some more truthful things about God. I want you to look at this in uh, Job 5.10. It says, who gives rain upon the earth and sends waters upon the fields? Who does that? Well, God gives rain upon the earth and God waters the fields. God waters the earth. And he sustains it with his providential care for his creation, both the crops and the people. He does these amazing things. He provides for what he has made, both for sinners and saints, for seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God provides. And if you think that he's just speaking nonsense, Isaiah 55.10 says this, For as the rain cometh, uh, cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and maketh it to bring, uh, to bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God is the provider. He's the one that made it all and formed it all. And as the rain comes down and fall, snow falls and doesn't return, but it waters the earth, causing it to come forth and bud, that it would produce. We have an amazing God. When's the last time you spent time just praising God? I think we spend more time complaining to God about what we do not have instead of praising God for what we do have. I praise God for my breath. I praise God for my family, for my son, for my daughters, for my bride. I praise God that he has seen fit to put them in my lives and curse them with me in theirs. Okay, because they get to deal with me I get to be blessed by them. And I love my kids. They're amazing. I love, I love the fact that I get to pour life into them. Because in this world, our world is feeding them lots of lies. Lots of lies that will kill them. Lots of lies that will destroy them. Lots of lies that will keep them down. When God has called me to encourage them to look to Christ. To look, to look to Christ. Listen, God sustains absolutely everything. He breathed out the stars. He breathed out the stars. I love Psalm 140, uh, 147, 3. It says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. But then it, it's really neat. And he put the stars in the sky and he gave them each a name. And if he gave the stars a name, what did he give you? He had crafted each and every one of you for the glory of his name. Whether you belong to Christ or not, you are his creation, fearfully and wonderfully made, and he makes no mistakes. He doesn't jack it up like we do. He's good, and he's merciful, and he's kind. I often wonder, when we look at all that God has done, we sometimes are given um, in our lives, you know, maybe a father that is not such a great example. You know, maybe they've left or maybe they're absentee or maybe they're just not involved in our lives. You know, and we, 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 we then introduce that same person to the holy and righteous God who is father. And we begin to attribute to him what our father is instead of realizing he's a better father and he sets the solitary in families. So we have to understand how amazingly awesome our God is because God does what? Great things. 
He does great things. He does great things. So our second truth, and this is our final truth, but it's a doozy, okay? Is be careful that your opinions do not become gospel truths. Be careful that your opinions do not become gospel truths. I want you to look at verse uh, 11. To set up the high, uh, on high those who be low, that they which mourn shall be, uh, be exalted to safety. So Eliphaz is about to make some statements here where he takes some general principles and makes them gospel. Guarantees for those who trust God. Specifically judging Job as one who is not privy to the blessing because he is wicked and evil. He is really speaking much like our prosperity preachers today, promising more than the Bible says. Guys, when we step beyond the scriptures, we are in dangerous territory. And there's judgment there. Job 5.11, we've already done. So God exalts the lowly. He exalts them. And by the way, this is true. He does. So that those who mourn, those who are broken can be exalted and brought to safety. So he gives the right truth. But it's, it's almost as if he's, he's saying to Job, and you are not humble. And you are not lowly. You are sinful and you need to repent. There is this, this idea here that these assumptions that Job is evil. Why does he assume that? Well, look at the circumstances of Job's life. The state of his life, the state of his family, the state of his health, and all of this loss. He is assuming that Job is going through all these because he must be arrogant, prideful, and sinful. Because he has not been set in, or exalted in safety. Guys, we are not promised safety. We're not promised safety. We are promised trials, tribulations, and persecution. Congratulations. Welcome to, I, I think, um, who is it? Brody said to, uh, to Andy, he says, welcome to the freak show. We're not promised safety. We're promised hard times, struggles. And so I want you to look what he does. He, in, in Job 5.12, he dis, disappoints he disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise and he takes the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. So God points the devices, of the, uh, the devices, the tools, the plans of the wicked so that they can no longer perform their enterprise, their craftiness, their wicked plans. So he assures Job of this. So he takes the wise, the self-proclaimed wise in their own craftiness and God does do that. In their own sneakiness. And he causes the counsel of the forward, the counsel of the wicked, to be caught in their own traps and fall in their own snares. So he is telling Job something really interesting. He's telling Job, that's why you're in the mess you're in. And it's because of you, Job. It's because of your wickedness. This is where he's at. And then you see Job 5.14. And they meet with darkness in the daytime and they grope in the new time as, night, as in night. So the wicked, they meet the daytime and they are caught in darkness even in the light of day. They will grope in the noonday and they, that, as they're groping without a light. Because listen, you can have pure bright sunshine. But if your heart is dark and cold, you're walking in darkness and thinking you are walking in the light. This is what our world is feeding us. That there's a better light than the scriptures if we could just achieve this utopia. This perfect world without God. This perfect world where we can all live with, you know, sugar plums and daisies. It's a lie. It's not true. There is a time coming, but it's not on this earth. There is a time coming. Well, all things will be made new. With all the tears that we, we shed will be wiped away. It's an amazing grace. And so, so he encourages Job that the poor, the poor uh, and the humble have hope. And now he's basically saying to Job, and so can you. 
But Job does have hope, and his name is the Lord God. But he is being told that he has no hope because he must be in sin and rejecting God. So, Job 5.15, listen to what it says. But he saves the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty, so that the poor have hope, iniquity stops from out. But instead of being caught up in darkness, God saves the poor. God saves the humble. He saves them from the sword. He saves them from the darkness. He saves them with, you know, from the words of the godless. He saves them from the hand of the mighty. He saves them from those who would threaten to destroy them. He saves them from the hand of these mighty people. He saves them who would threaten to destroy them. And that's what Christ does. But because Christ saves us from this incredible uh, onslaught against us, he does not promise us smooth sailing in clear waters. And we'll get to that in a moment. So the poor have hope, the poor have comfort, and iniquity, who he personifies as a woman, you know, will have her mouth shut and her tongue will be silenced. And one day that will happen. But he's trying to attribute that to Job if he would just repent, that everything would be great. Okay? God saves the righteous, but he's implying something here. He's implying that the righteous will never struggle. They will never have burdens. Everything would be, uh, you know, roses and daisies and every other plant that you like. I don't know. They all die when I try to plant them, but it doesn't matter. Okay? And so it, it, it's really interesting. So he continues his advice, which is not advice, yet veiled judgment because of his wrong application with right godly words. Now, did you hear what I said? Wrong application of right godly words. Have you ever given advice to someone from your own heart instead of from the scriptures? Have you ever taken a verse out of context and tried to comfort somebody with those words? It doesn't work so well. Or maybe it works too well. Because how many people today believe they're saved when they're not? All because they walked an aisle, said a prayer, got dunked in some water. So, and then he goes on, and he, here's another piece of advice, which are right words. Listen, behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, and dis, uh, therefore despise not the chasing of the Almighty. So what he says to Job is right. Hey, Job, happy is the man who blesses the man whom God corrects. Okay, I, I love this whom God chastens, assuming sin on Job's part yet again. Now, it is true that we are blessed men when God corrects us, when we turn from our own sin and, and return to righteousness. We are blessed when we repent. Hebrews 12, 6 is pretty awesome. It says this, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. He asks, <laughs> I love this, he, he, he's, he, he's talking about this correction stuff, but Job is not in need of correction. He right now is in need of being held by the God who is going to hold him. But if we belong to Christ, God disciplines, corrects those whom he loves. He admonishes, he disciplines, he, he even scourges and chastises and they beat those who receive him so that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. Think about that. And, and I want you to look at what it says in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. I love that. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he corrects, even as a father, uh, as a father the son in whom he delighteth. If you are not disciplined by God for your sin, you may not be a son. You may not be a child of the king of heaven. Okay, God corrects his saints as sons, and he does so because he delights in his children. Okay, listen, I have to say this, and please forgive me if this sounds wrong. But not all men are children of God. Children of God are those who repent and believe the gospel. Now, all men are the creation of God, his crowning achievement, but only children of God, they have to be saints. They must belong to him. 
So there's a distinguishing mark. That doesn't mean that people are, are useless or worthless. It just means that children of God actually belong to God. I got real bright. And I want you to really think about it. So don't despise the chasing of the Lord is what even uh, Eliphaz says. And look what it says, Hebrews 12, 7. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. Listen to what he says. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? It's brilliant. If you endure chastening and correction, then God is dealing with you as a son, as a child of promise that has been lavished upon us. For what son is he whom the father doesn't correct? By the way, listen. If a father doesn't correct his son, it really shows a lack of love. Does that make sense? Because we want our children to learn and grow and change. Now what that discipline looks like, I'll leave to you and God. But I'm just saying, as I watch this, I want you to listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, 8. For if you be without chasten, uh, chastisement, whereof are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. By the way, that's scriptural. That's not me cussing. Okay? If we belong to God, we are not bastards, which the definition is one without a father, but we have a father that loves us enough to correct us. So what if you don't have a father that does that? Then look to the father in heaven who does that. Look to the best father there is. The one who sets the solitary families. The one who, who cares for the orphan and the widow. The one who loves and cares so much about his creation that he slays his own son so that you might have life. Anyone who does not, is not admonished or corrected by God for sin is an illegitimate child, a son who does not belong to the father. But let's continue with Job, because we may have stayed there too long. Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not the chasing of the Almighty. So therefore do not despise when God corrects. Okay, But we must remember that Job was not guilty of sinfulness here to deserve this type of trouble he is facing. So... To call him to repent when this was a product of God being about his own glory. Job is not being disciplined for sin. He is being tried so that God would be glorified and hold his saints through every drought and storm. Through every struggle and pain. God holds his saints and none can cause his people, his redeemed, his saved people to reject him or turn away from him, or curse him to his face. God holds his saints. So even though that's not what Eliphaz's intention is here, we see some truth that we could pull out of what he says. I want you to look what it says in 5.18. Job 5.18. For he makes sore and he binds up. He wounds and his hands make whole. So he comforts Job with these words, that God makes sore and God corrects and it is painful and then God binds up. He wounds his saints with correction, but when, but then he with his own hands heals. But listen, he's not wounding Job because of sin. Because he is really showing that he holds his saints. So God does allow hurt but not because of our own sinfulness many times, but so that we would be refined, so we would be pruned, so we would learn and grow according to his likeness. Here's what it says in Lamentations 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet, listen, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of mercies which is mercy upon mercy, upon mercy, upon mercy, upon mercy, upon mercy. And you can say a few more if you want to, okay? So w w let's think about the blind man who was born blind. What does Jesus say about him? Listen, John 9, 3 says, and Jesus answered, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, 
but that the works of God should be manifest in him. It was for the glory of God. That's it. Not because the man or his parents sinned, but because of the glory of God. So God, 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 God would be glorified. So that God would be glorified. God would be lifted up. So that Jesus would increase and his saints would decrease. So we know that Eliphaz assumes sinfulness because of the next verse. It makes it pretty clear. Okay? But before we go there, I want you to, I want, I want there to, I want you guys to see something about the arguments that, the, you know, these guarantees to saints that they are not guaranteed this side of heaven. Okay? He is making assumptions about Job, and then he's making declaratives about Job that is not his right to make. Okay? Eliphaz is wrong on so many levels. Listen to what he says. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, and even in, se uh, in seven um, in seven, there shall be no evil touch you. So he tells Job that if he would just repent, God would deliver him from, uh, for, in particular from six troubles, even in seven troubles, he will be helped and evil would never touch him. Where does it say that in scripture? Sorry, if I seem a little emotional, I might be just a little. Okay. Job 5.20. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. So in famine he would be sustained, and he would be redeemed from the death of, uh, by famine. In war he would be saved from the power of the sword. So he's telling Job that he would have no more struggle, no more trial, that he should repent of these perceived sins. Now listen, does God save in, in famine? Absolutely he does. He saves his people in famine. But isn't God the one that caused the famine that you saw happening in Jeremiah's day? There's Jeremiah. I had to bring him in. It's because God also disciplines those he calls his people. All right? And uh, so, so, but God will redeem Job from death and save him from the power of the sword and would turn, if he would just turn from his wickedness to God, God would protect him from the destruction from enemies who want him dead. So listen, our physical comfort our temporary station in life does not guarantee to be according to how we think it should be. Okay? How we live. Or, and Job is a perfect example. Jer by the way, Jeremiah, Hosea, they had to go through some really hard things in order to do the will of God. So why do we just lie and say that there is only blessings for saints? Physical, temporary blessings for saints. So we have to understand uh, uh, one of the proverbs that really um, I think sometimes we try to use as guarantees is the one that says, train up a child the way he should go. And when he's older, he shall not depart far from it. Okay. That is not a guarantee. It's good advice. It's sage advice, but it's not guaranteed. This is why we're called to give the gospel to our children 24-7. When we lie down, when we rise up, whatever we do, we're constantly pointing them to Christ. Because it's not guaranteed. And so, Job uh, 5.21. Listen to what he says next. Thou shalt, uh, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Neither shall thou be afraid of destruction when it comes. So now he's telling Job, hey, and no one's going to talk against you. Uh, okay. I'm sorry, does not the world talk against the saints? Does not the world try to shut down the word of God? Does not the world want the word of God to be silenced or, or regulated to just Sunday? You, oh, you can't bring that in here. God has no place in the Senate or the Congress. Understand, try that, you know, to say that we wouldn't face even a harsh tongue is a lie. I'm sorry. Let's use the best example I got. What about Christ? They talk more junk about him than anyone else. Oh, he's got the devil in him. That's what they said. And so, so sinful men are always going to be against the people of God. By the way, uh, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Mr. Boatwright from Cornerstone. 
Mr. Broadwright was really funny one day, and we were talking about, I was talking, I, I was praying for persecution to come. And he said to me, I don't know if you remember this, he said to me, Tom, don't be stupid. I said, what? Persecution will grow the church. He goes, Tom, you be holy. Persecution will come. And I said, yeah, that's good. I had to learn. Because I could pray for uh, persecution, but in the end, if I'm holy, the persecution will come. The arrows will come. So, by the way, I, I so bad wanted to defend myself on that one, and I couldn't. All right. <clears throat> so, Job 5.22. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh. I thought this was interesting. Neither shalt thou be afraid of the beasts of the earth. Okay. Uh, so, in, in destruction and famine... He's saying, Job, you're going to laugh because you're going to watch everyone be struggling. And you're gonna, that's kind of what the impression is that you get. But he's just, he's telling Job what he hopes would happen. And so, so he tells Job that he would laugh at this destruction and famine. And he promises that he would never be afraid of the beasts of the earth and th that threatened to devour. He would, he would be in fear or better, he would, not have, he would never be in fear or never have any occasion to fear. But he would be at peace. He would be at peace, both with the land and with the animals. 523, it says he would be in league with the stones. I thought that was interesting. You know what stones never stop? Growth. So there could be stones in the field, but this, the, the, the crop around the stone will grow. Now, the ones that land on the stone, not so much. If we go by the seed we were talking about, right? Thank you very much for that last week. But the ones, the stones don't interrupt the crop around the stone. And so I, I thought this was really interesting. He says, so it doesn't hurt the crop or hinder growth. So Eliphaz is assuming that this restored relationship with, uh, with God and Job, the land and the animal will all just say, ooh, kumbaya. We love Job. We're going to do everything Job tells us. And so it, it's really interesting. Now, 524. And we are almost done, maybe. Okay, in 524 it says, And thou shalt know, I love this, listen to what it says, And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit thy habitation and shall not sin. And your house is always going to be peaceful, and you're never going to sin again. Uh, is anyone else going, Yeah, do you know what happened a couple minutes ago in my mind because Tom was preaching too long? Uh, yeah, yeah, all right, sorry, that was bad. You shouldn't have raised your hand. Okay, all right. So, so he tells him that he will always be at peace. So he's promising something that hits outside of his pay grade to promise. Job five twenty five says, and thou shalt know, thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thy offspring and the grass of the earth. Listen, he makes some promises that Job will be blessed with offspring, and Job is probably thinking to himself, dude, I want my own kids back. Why are you saying this to this guy who just lost his entire family? Every child he loves is now gone. Everyone he would sacrifice constantly for is dead. So this is how you're going to encourage him? Moron. Sorry. Sorry. I, he was a good friend, but not a very smart one. Uh, so it's really amazing. How is this helpful? How does this encourage a brother who lost his livelihood, his wealth, his children, and his health? Is this supposed to help him stop mourning? Woohoo! Gonna have more children later! Not so much. Is this supposed to help him make sense of all this mess in his life? Not so much. So, what good is having a, fee a, a seed so vast when you do not even know why? It is that you've lost everything to begin with. Job 5.26 And thou shalt come to thy grave in full age, and the shock of thy corn cometh in its season. So he promises Job he'll live long. And as, you know, just like the crop comes in, he'll live long. And, and Job is thinking, I wish God would just take me now. I wish I was never born. And you're going to say this to him? Oh, wow. By the way, I, I've talked to some of you brothers about those, those 
those platitudes we sometimes give as Christians. Here's one of them. It's a platitude. So watch what happens in verse 27. Lo, this we have, uh, lo this, we have searched it, and so it is. Hear it, and, and know thou it for thy good. So now he speaks for all of the three that are with him, and he says, God, you know, Job, we know this is true. Listen to it, and it'll be good for you. How is this good? Now, guys, I'm not saying he doesn't say some good things. What I'm saying is, it's the wrong advice at the wrong time to the wrong guy. Now, is there some repentance that has to happen on Job's part? Probably because he's doubting the goodness of God. Yes. But that's not what brought him into this mess in the first place. It's for the glory of God. So, in a way, they are telling Job that he should listen to them, though they don't even understand what they know or what they're advising. So God does protect his people from struggles, uh, you know, from uh, some struggles and some trials. But that's not it. We're supposed to go through trials and tribulations. They're almost guaranteed. Here's what it says. Listen to this. You'll like this. Okay? We are not immune to temptation. We are not unsusceptible to endorse hardship. The fact is, it is assumed. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says... No temptation has taken you, but such that is what? Common to man. Which man? Every man. That such is common to man. But God is what? Faithful. He's faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may bear it. He is the faithful one, even when we are not the faithful one. And so... When you're tempted, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able. But the reason why we seem to be tempted above that we're able is because we do not give it to God. We think we can handle it. I got this. You ain't got nothing. We have a God that got us. God's, God's has. has. Sorry, English teacher. Okay? And so to assume that you will never struggle... Like, like Eliphaz is saying, is to believe a lie. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, right before the verse on temptation. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you think you're standing, watch out. Guys, when we are so self-sufficient, we don't, we're not God-sufficient, there's a fall coming. All right? So what do we do with all this? Paul has some thorn in the flesh. I don't know if you remember this. And he begged God three times to remove this thorn in his flesh. And here is God's response. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds like this. He goes, all right, fine. Your grace is sufficient and your strength is made perfect in my weakness. Watch what he says. Most gladly, therefore... Will I rather glory in my infirmities, glory in my sicknesses, glory in what is going on with me, glory in my trials, okay? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's response to God is to take pleasure in suffering so that his weakness would show Christ's power. And you know uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall make straight your path. You know that one? But verse 7 continues and says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Stop thinking you got this. Trust God and turn from evil. And so... Though we are told to trust God with everything we are, everything we feel, everything that our hearts uh, struggle with, all of our understanding, acknowledging Him in everything, and you know, call, letting Him direct our steps, we don't do this without turning from sin and trusting Him. When we trust Him, we will turn from sin. And so, if you do not know Christ, you are separated from God, and what you need is life. That only comes through Christ.
The gospel is what gives life. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection gives life. What we're going to be celebrating next week, the resurrection promises those who believe life forevermore. And so, I, I, want to, I want to hit this just to close. It says, uh, John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Listen, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. No. But be of good cheer. I have... Oh, what's that next word? Oh, what's that? I have overcome the world. So, the battle is already won. We're just walking it out. And if you're in Christ, stand in the power of who he is. And if you're not, repent and believe the gospel. Okay? When you trust Christ, you need not be indebted to sin anymore. Because this is what happens. When we trust Christ, sin is defeated, the penalty is paid, and the power of sin has ended over our lives. We no longer have to be prisoners of sin ever again. So here's the last bit of sage, godly advice from the Savior. Mark 1.15 And saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Father, will you be glorified and lifted up? Will you be honored and adored? Will you grant, Lord God, that we would just rest in the fact that you are God and we are not? Father, you would help us to really look at what your word has to say and not our opinions and not preach our opinions as gospel because Lord God that does not save only the gospel saves only what Christ has done on our behalf saves his shed blood on the cross is what saves when we repent and we believe the gospel I pray that today if there's anyone listening that doesn't know you today they would surrender and submit to Christ in repentance and faith in Jesus' name, amen. We're singing. We're singing.